Today we come to the last of seven signs that are found in the Gospel of John. And this last sign is a lasting sign with a message that God raises up that which dies. The Gospel of John has been giving us a new perspective that the other Gospel accounts don't give us because John uses symbolism. And this symbolism goes beyond the historical event that is being talked about. And it kind of permeates reality with an additional message. And this message is often interwoven with the characters that we find in the story. Today we're going to take a look at a story found in John chapter 11 about Mary and Martha and her brother Lazarus. It is a long passage of scripture. It takes up the entirety, really, of the uh, chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. And I'll summarize it in a couple of moments. But I'd like to illustrate something that has been true about all of these statements and seven signs. As we've been trying to find kind of the symbolic through the mystic interpretation of the scriptures, that is, the encounter of the different experiences, not only of the people that we see in the story, but in our own lives as well. What we do is we take the opportunity to go on a voyage to find the kind of life that Jesus is offering, a life that is full of grace and truth, a life that is full, that enables us to live beyond our circumstances. So there are these seven signs, and we have looked at all of them over the last several weeks. Changing the water to wine, healing the royal official's son, healing the paralytic at Bethesda, feeding the multitude, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and today, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, inside some of those miracles, we also find Jesus making certain claims about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, and the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. Now we haven't looked at all of those statements, we've only looked at a few of them as they have been nested inside the seven miracle signs. Well, I brought with me today my tea kettle, and this particular tea kettle I turn on every morning when I come downstairs. Now, we all have our morning routine, right? So at about a quarter to seven, I jump in the shower, and then I head downstairs, and the first thing I do is I turn on this tea kettle. And this tea kettle takes a little bit of time to warm up, as you will see, but once it begins boiling, it begins to kind of bubble up. And as it begins to bubble up, it then kind of clicks off, and then comes the time that I choose what flavor of tea I want for that morning. I take out a cup, I put that tea bag in there, and I put that boiling water over it. And the blend of mixes there begin to give off not only the flavor, but even to a certain extent the aroma, like peppermint tea or something like that. Now, when you look at a story in the Gospels, and in particular in the Gospel of John, it is sort of like this tea kettle. It begins with just kind of what we observe. It's the things everybody sees when they read the text. It's things that, 
you can't miss. It's right there. For in the case of Lazarus, he is the brother of Mary and Martha. He gets sick. He dies. Mary and Martha call for Jesus to come and to heal him. And Jesus decides that he's not going to go right away. The text will tell us in John chapter 1 that after he hears that Lazarus, his dear friend, is sick, he chooses to stay away for another couple days. Here's how the text begins. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you were going to go back? Jesus answered very mystically, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Do you see the kind of symbolic, mystical kind of way Jesus is dealing with his disciples? And the disciples, with rote literalism, say, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Let's not go. (laughs) There's trouble that awaits there. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So finally, Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, you can read the details of that, but there is a lot that is going on there. And there is an ancient mystic, his name is Meister Eckhart, who said that in some passages of Scripture, it is like when water boils and things kind of bubble to the surface that you have to wait on to be able to see. This tea kettle here, as it begins to warm up, it will kind of give forth the bubbling action. We can shut it off, but if we come back to it again, just like we come back to stories in the Bible and turn that back on, certain things will bubble up in the text that maybe you've never seen, or certain things will bubble up in the text that have an additional meaning. Because as you can see here, Jesus often spoke very cryptically and mysteriously, right? He often said things that the disciples went, what is he talking about? And so he has to interpret it for them. But in the seven signs here, you don't just have miracles, you have messages behind them. 
as well. And I want you to watch a video. Uh, this comes from Dr. Ben Witherington. He is a professor of New Testament Greek at Asbury College down in Kentucky. And um, he does a great job summarizing these seven signs. So let's watch. What should we say about the seven signs of the Gospel of John? Well, the first thing to say is that the word samion, sign, means something that points to something outside of itself, just like a turn left sign or a turn right sign is not left or right in itself, it's pointing to something outside of itself. So the first thing to be said about the sign miracles in the Gospel of John is that they are not ends in themselves, they are means to an end. In particular, they are pointing to Christ. And in this regard, they tend to be a little different from what you have when you have miracles in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Synoptics, the miracles are the signs of the coming of the kingdom. In John, the miracles are the signs of the coming of the king. Now, typically, in the synoptic gospels, the miracles are called dynamis, that is, mighty works. But in the gospel of John, they are called signs because of their symbolic quality of pointing to the Christ. Here's another interesting aspect about the seven signs. Seven, of course, was the Hebrew number for perfection. This is a very clear selection of miracles of Jesus um, and we are told he did many other signs and wonders but they couldn't all be included in this book so the author is very intentionally including just the seven for a variety of reasons one of the notable things about them is there is no exorcism in the seven in fact nowhere in the Gospel of John at all does Jesus perform an exorcism? And yet in the earliest gospel we have, Mark, exorcism is, if not the most frequent miracle Jesus performs, it's one of them. How do we account for this? Well, the focus of the Gospel of John is on miracles that Jesus performed in and around Judea, by and large. And uh, there are exceptions to this, the Cana miracle, the feeding the 5,000, but basically the distinctive miracles in the Gospel of John of the healing of the man born blind or the raising of Lazarus or the paralytic at the pool, these are all miracles that take place in Jerusalem because the Gospel of John has a Judean and Jerusalem focus, not a Galilean focus. Now the third thing to say about these miracles is that there's a sort of crescendo of the miraculous in them, a sort of can you top this? So we start by turning water into gallons of gallo, the turning of water into wine at Cana, and we finish with a bang with the raising of Lazarus from the dead who is more than three days dead and so well and truly dead, which foreshadows the great miracle at the end of the second half of the Gospel of John, the raising of Jesus himself. So there is this crescendo of the miraculous as you go with these miracles. So let's walk through the seven signs and just think about what we are being told here. We're going to work backwards from the seventh one to the first one. The last one is the raising of Jesus' friend, the beloved disciple, Lazarus. And this happens 
only after Jesus has been away for a good period of time and doesn't return in time to prevent Lazarus from dying. But when he gets there, due to the beseeching of both Martha and Mary, he goes and raises Lazarus from the tomb. He comes out of the tomb, he's unwrapped, and he's alive again. Now, I'm not an archaeologist or the son of an archaeologist, but I would like to find the tombstone of Lazarus. It would say, died 29 AD, and then died 43 AD. This would confuse some people. The Gospel of John focuses on Jesus as the risen one, and so, of course, the climactic sign, number seven, is about the raising of Lazarus. Just before that, in John 9, we have the long account of the healing of the man born blind. This is a spectacular story of ships passing in the night as the Jewish authorities become more and more blind and more hard-hearted about Jesus, whereas the blind man gains sight and insight and finally confesses Jesus to be the Son of Man in this particular story. What's especially miraculous about this story is there are no accounts in the Old Testament of a man born blind being healed of his blindness. There's a promise that that will happen one day. The blind will see, the lame will walk, and so on. But not before Jesus is there any performing of giving sight to a man born blind. So that's pretty spectacular in itself. Then some of these other miracles need detailed attention as well. Just as the man born blind is healed by going and washing the mud off his eyes at the pool of Siloam, so we also have the story of the healing of a paralytic at a different pool, the pool of Bethesda, also in Jerusalem. And these two stories in John 5 and John 9 should be carefully contrasted. The John 5 story involves someone who is skeptical and even outs Jesus to the authorities um, and Jesus has to come to at the end of the story and say, stop sinning or bad things are going to happen to you. This is very different from the end of John 9 where Jesus finds the blind man and confirms to him who it is who has done this for him and asks him to confess Jesus to be the Son of Man he does. So if you want to look at what's going on in these narratives, you should compare and contrast the healing at the Pool of Bethesda with the healing at the Pool of Siloam and the two different outcomes. Two equally genuine miracles, but one leads to more faith in Jesus and the other does not. And this brings up a crucial point that is made over and over again in John. And that is, seeing does not necessarily lead to believing, it's believing that leads to seeing and understanding about Jesus. Then, of course, we have the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the Roman soldier's son or slave at a distance, and, of course, the turning of the water into wine. Some people have asked, what's that all about? What's the turning of the water into wine really all about? Is Jesus the host with the most? At a wedding party? I mean, what's the real significance of this? Well, nothing in the Gospel of John goes without symbolic significance. And we are told there are all these jars of Jewish purification water. So it's the Jewish purification water that's turned into the new wine. And this is seen as a picture of how the old and lifeless water that could only clean the outside of a person 
has been displaced by the new wine of the gospel, which can bring joy to the inside of a person and change their life. It has been said about the Gospel of John that this gospel is shallow enough for a baby to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. That's especially true in these seven sign narratives, and I encourage you to study them deeply. Okay, he does a great job in summarizing what we've already kind of talked about. So I kind of put this little chart together to kind of symbolize that with each sign miracle comes attention as well. When the water is changed to wine, then the tension comes when Jesus cleanses the temple. He then talks to Nicodemus and Samaritan woman, and the Jewish people don't like the fact that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And then he heals the uh, Gentile official son, who is Gentile, not Jewish, healing of a paralytic on the Sabbath day. Why couldn't he have done it any other day? That is tension number three, violating the Torah law. Then he feeds the multitude, he walks on water, heals a man born blind, and then now, with the raising of Lazarus, comes a plot to kill him. So there's these different tensions. But have you noticed along the way, every one of these miraculous sign miracles are also related to the Jewish nation. Water to wine, Jewish purification vessels. Number two, healing of a Gentile official, don't heal a Gentile, don't heal a, an army official's relative, that's taboo. Um, healing of a man on the, par, on the a paralytic on the Sabbath, you're violating Torah law. Feeding of the 5,000 is reminding us of the feeding of the nation of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Walking on water is a reminder of how Jesus uh, is alluding to the splitting of the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could uh, go to the promised land. The healing of the man born blind, this spiritual blindness that it seems the leaders of Israel have. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead also has a Jewish meaning to it. Now, Many scholars wonder if this account of the raising of Lazarus is more of a parable than it is an actual historical event. Here's why. You can find Mary and Martha in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other synoptic gospels, but no Lazarus, which is interesting because here they're kind of grouped together, right? The only time Lazarus, the name, appears anyplace else is in a parable in Luke chapter 16 where Lazarus is the one that is coming to the gate of Abraham's bosom and then there's the rich man that is prevented to, from entering into paradise because Lazarus is poor and he's been taken advantage of over the years by the rich uh, man. That's the only other time. Now... So, if this is the climactic miracle, Jesus raising a man from the dead, 
Why isn't this account also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Right? Why don't they tell anything about it? So scholars are saying, maybe, just maybe what's going on here is this is a parable that is deeply meaning something else. Now think about this. The other miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the multitude, occurs in all the Gospels, all four of them. The walking on the water appears in other Gospels, but not this story. Ah, we need to turn the tea kettle on. And we need to see what is bubbling up out of this. I think the analysis of the story will tell us what's going on here. So, this being the final sign is more than just a historical occurrence. I think it's a historical occurrence. Some scholars don't, but it's more than that. What we see are symbols bubbling up. It does kind of have a feel of a parable, but at the same time, there's something very tender in this story. Lazarus dies. Jesus waits. And the women are in despair. Now, if you read the rest of chapter 11, both Martha and Mary come up to Jesus and say the same darn thing. If you had been here, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You could have healed him. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, oh, I should have been here. No, this is intentional so that you might see the glory of God. Fascinating comment. So he talks with Mary and Martha, and here's what bubbles up out of the text. After telling the disciples that he's going to go and, and raise Lazarus from the dead, what we find is Jesus talks to Martha and says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus very mystically says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, why should she believe Jesus? He's just disappointed her, right? But she does. She says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the one that's sent into the world. And so, Jesus goes on toward the tomb, and he runs into Mary. Mary has the same comment. If you had been here, he would not have died. Now, he finally reaches the tomb of Lazarus. And the shortest verse in the Bible is verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, Jesus already knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but he cries, he weeps, he travails. And then finally he does what we read earlier. He says, Lazarus, come out. Take the grave clothes off of him and set him free. These signs are supersized 
And what bubbles up out of the text, I think, is a symbolism found in the name Lazarus. The name Lazarus means God is my helper. But what is really fascinating about it, as it relates to a Jewish religion that has died, it's lying lifeless in the tomb, and he is calling to bring them back to life, is found in the fact that even though Lazarus, that name is only found two times in the New Testament, it's a popular name in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the name that equates to Lazarus is Eleazar. Eleazar in Hebrew, El meaning God, Ezer meaning help, God is my help, is the name of the first high priest after Aaron. You remember, so they come out of Egypt and God is going to establish the priesthood, right? Aaron is the first priest and then Eleazar succeeds him. And what we find in the book of Exodus, and it's found in Numbers as well, is Eleazar becomes the representation of that which God has given as an intermediary, as one who would intervene on behalf of those that are in despair. It is the high priest that will go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. It is the high priest and the entire priesthood that will allow the people to really come to grips with the fact that God is my help. All right? So if that's true, maybe, just maybe, if like the other signs, Jesus is calling the nation of Israel to come back to faith rather than rote religion, to come back to integrity rather than having a corrupt leadership, then maybe this miracle also is saying, you're rotting, you stink, but come out, be raised again, take the grave clothes off. Now, how do I know? Because even though we're not going to go into chapters 12 and, and following, because next week what we're going to do is we're going to take a turn. So this is the last of the seven signs. And if we are being called uh, to find hope with the lights along the shoreline, then what we're going to find is before we get there, we're going to have to face some stormy waters. And that's what's next in the Gospel of John, is stormy waters. But what we find in chapter 12 is this. When you look at chapter 12 of John, it tells us what the religious leader is thinking. So in chapter 12, um, Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem, and what he's going to do is on Palm Sunday present himself to the people, and finally he predicts his death in chapter 12. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, how is that? That's through his death and then eventually his own resurrection. When you take a look at verse 37 of chapter 12, it says this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. What's fascinating here is all these religious leaders saw all these miracles, and yet they had a hard heart, right? And here Jesus is saying that 
He has come into the world to be the light of the world, but they refuse to see like the blind man. Finally, in chapter 12, verse 42, it says, At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. So finally, some of the leaders of the Judaism of the day are starting to come to faith. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Fascinating. The religious leaders were threatening those that were starting to believe in Jesus. If you believe in him, you're out. Right? And isn't this kind of the tradition of religion? You've got to believe exactly the way we believe. If you're not, you're what? Out. Right? Those are grave clothes. And what we find is that Jesus has come to set us free He's weeping, just like he did going into Jerusalem on Paul Sunday. He's weeping that things have not gone better for the nation. And as he weeps, we see his emotional side, we see his relational side. And you know what's interesting? Following chapter 12 of John, it's there that we see the more tender side of Jesus because he's concentrating on his disciples. And from chapter 13 to the end, here's what we see bubbling up. We see that he washes the feet of his disciples in chapter 13. We see him saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go away, I would go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I'll come back to receive you as myself. It's there we see the promise of the Holy Spirit, chapters 14 through 16. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send an advocate. I'm going to give to you the proxy presence of myself in the Holy Spirit. It's on the cross that he looks down. And he says, it's finished. I've shown you my love. It's finished. And then we see Thomas who doubts at the end of the Gospel of John. And it is Jesus that says, Thomas, feel my wounds. Thomas. Thomas. What happened here? It went out, didn't it? Oh, there it goes. Okay. He says to Thomas, Thomas, feel my wounds, right? Feel my side. And then, probably the most tender moment in the Gospel of John is in chapter 21. You remember Peter denies Jesus three times, right? And he meets G uh, Peter on the beach. And he's cooking some breakfast for Peter. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter in his shame says, you know I love you. He asks a second time and a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's overwhelmed with emotion. It's, uh, it's a scene of tenderness. And it's a scene of resurrection. What we find is Peter then is told by Jesus, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's been restored. He's been resurrected. He's been given new life. And that's where the significance of this story is for us as well. We all have the Lazarus effect. 
It's those dead areas of our life that is keeping us bound up and unable to move. It might be fear, it might be anxiety, it might be depression, it might be a host of other things that's keeping us tightly wrapped. And Jesus comes, but he doesn't come to fix things right away. Sometimes he waits two days. And sometimes we feel like we are giving off an odor because things have gotten bad. But Jesus is coming. We are always concerned about the outcome of something rather than understanding the process that gets us there. And that's often why God waits. He often allows delays so that we will learn to trust him more. So the question we have this morning is this. When we are tempted to ask, why does God allow bad things to happen to us? The very question might be the beginning, not the end of faith. Because it's through that process that we are called forth to resurrection. But the key question is the same one that was asked of Martha. Do you believe this? Can you trust God in the midst of your doubt? And it's just one little yes that can change our life and give to us new hope. And it is those things that allow us to enlarge our understanding of life and our view of the world. And um, I want to close before we sing a song together. There is an old song that dates back to the 1800s, and I want to quote the lyrics of it. The authorship is unknown, but it is often partially credited to Elder John Ellis. And then uh, others credit this song to a, a singer-preacher by the name of B.F. White. There have been many, uh, many copies of this song and different artists that have sung it, including Bob Dylan. And here's the verses to that. It says, I came to the place where the lone pilgrim lay and pensively stood by his tomb. When in a low whisper I heard something say, how sweetly I sleep here alone. The tempest may howl and the loud thunder roar and the gathering storms may arise, but calm are my feelings, at ease is my soul. The tears are all wiped from my eyes. Twas the cause of my master compelled me from home. I bade my companions farewell. I kiss my dear children, who for me now mourn, in regions far distant they dwell. I wandered in exile, and far from my home, no kindred or relative nigh. I met the contagion, and sank to the tomb. My soul flew to mansions on high. So tell my companion and children most dear, to weep not for me, now I'm gone. For the same hand that led me through scenes most severe has kindly assisted me home. God shows up at the tomb of every Lazarus, and we are to hear him calling out, take off the grave clothes and let them go. Stand as we close in song.